Mike Trainum just read to us Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. And what we see in this passage is that Abraham, the character that Jillian read a story about from earlier in the Bible, Abraham is a prime example in the Bible of what it looks like to trust in God. Listen again to Romans chapter 4. This will focus right now beginning in verse 18. Hoping against hope. He trusted that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said. So numerous shall your descendants be. Now think about this. Abraham trusted in God's promise. Despite the fact that he and Sarah were infertile. They couldn't get pregnant day in and day out. Month by month, year after year, there was nothing but barrenness. One year, two years, three years, five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-four years, God promised them babies, nations, nothing, barrenness. Abraham had a really good reason to doubt. He had real good evidence to be suspicious of God's promises. All the evidence, all his experiences seemed to contradict God's word. But look what it says in Romans 4 verse 19. In spite of all the evidence, in spite of all his experiences shouting to the contrary, Abraham did not weaken in trust. When he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old. So, right? It's not just infertility. It's, goodness gracious, right? (laughs) 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in trust as he gave glory to God. That's a remarkable journey, right? 24 years of the silence of God, in effect, of, the, of God not showing up and delivering. And in the meantime, Abraham is growing in his trust. As he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith, his trust, was counted to him as righteousness. And what we're seeing here is that the Bible teaches us that the life of Abraham is a prime example of what it means to be in a right relationship with God. To be rightly related to our maker. And it's this. Those who are rightly related to their maker are those who hear him and trust him. Those who are in a right relationship to God are those who have heard God And trusted God. Trusting God's promises. That's what it means in the Bible to have faith. Faith that justifies. Failing to trust God's promises. In the Bible, that's what it means to be faithless. Instead of distrusting God's promises, Abraham trusted in God's promises. Instead of being suspicious of God's promises, Abraham trusted in them. 
Now, don't misunderstand. We've seen over the past 12 weeks that Abraham is not a simpleton. We're not, we're, we've seen over the past 12 weeks that Abraham is not the kind of person who doesn't see the tension, doesn't feel the pain. He's wrestled with his doubts. Three times he's gone to God in argument about these issues. Not only decades of barrenness, but the fate accompli just a few chapters ago, Sarah's menopause. I mean, we can kind of believe that God can overcome infertility, but can God overcome menopause? He wrestles, he openly questions God, and yet when push comes to shove, Abraham discounted his own experience and foregrounded God's promises. When push came to shove, Abraham aimed his suspicion at his perception of reality and rested his faith on God's promises. Romans 4.17 says that Abraham trusted in God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. And as a result of this way of acting with God, as a result of having this kind of trust in God, Romans 4.22 tells us that his trust in God, his faith was counted to him as righteousness, which means he is rightly related to his maker. Abraham shows us that those who stand in right relation to God are those who hear and trust what God has spoken. And sometimes we do that. And sometimes we don't. Time and time again, we rise up and trust God. And time and time again, we fall and don't trust God. We don't trust God's instructions for how to live our lives. We don't trust that the meek will inherit the earth. And so we act with power at work. We don't trust that forgiveness is the way of life. And so we hold on to to anger and grudges. We don't trust in God's wisdom. So we strike out on our own. We fear. We worry. We are overcome by anxiety. All of these are instances of a lack of faith. A failure to trust in God's ways. But the good news is that God has overcome even our faithlessness through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Our relationship of trust with God is restored through the perfect faithful life of Jesus. This is God's promise. This is God's word. God's promise as you keep reading through the Bible is that Jesus lived a perfectly faithful life. And that will overcome even your failings of trust. Now the question is, do you believe that? Do you trust that Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus the Son of God, that his faithfulness to God the Father overcomes your faithlessness? Do you lean on that? Do you put all of your weight on that? Do you trust that in his life and death, Jesus, God the Son, was faithful to God the Father? And if you do, if you trust in Jesus, then your sins are forgiven. Your faithlessness is overcome. And God will enable you to live a life of faith.
So in the last half of Genesis chapter 21, the passage Gillian read to us when it says that at that time Abimelech and Fecal, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. It is God's faithfulness to Abraham that Abraham has put his trust in and King Abimelech is bearing witness to that. The Christian life is a life lived walking in faith, trusting in God to keep all of his promises. Do you trust the God revealed in the Bible to keep all of the promises laid out in Scripture? Do you trust that he will be faithful To do not only to the cosmos, but in your own life, what he has promised to do. Now, let's notice how this life of Abraham, this trust in God. Let's notice how Abraham's trust in God, in God's word, in God's promises, works its way out in the concrete details of Abraham's life. Here at the end of chapter 21, there are two particular concrete ways that Abraham's faith in God works its way out in in his everyday life. The first one is how Abraham's faith is worked out in his politics. His politics. Now to see this, we've got to back up for just a minute. Back in Genesis chapter 12, when God first made his promises to Abraham, he promised him that he would become a great nation. And as time goes by, God promises that eventually the nations of the world will come into the work that God is doing in the life of Abraham. And the nations will eventually beat their swords into plowshares. As they come under the good and benevolent reign and rule of the maker who will also be their redeemer. Now the God making these promises is the maker of the world. The creator of the cosmos. And as we've seen in Abraham's life, this God is a promise keeping God. So we should expect that his promises about kings and nations will come true. And here in Genesis 21, 22 is the first time this comes true. A king comes and says, man, there is something here and I've got to enter into a a side by side. I've got to come into this because this is where blessing is. We know from Genesis chapter 20 that Abimelech is a king. He's the king of Gerar. And so here we see the first occurrence of God's deep promise to a, a barren, infertile, childless nomad. Remarkably coming true. Suddenly the weakest person in the whole story starting in Genesis 12. Is now having a king. Not even coming by himself. But with the commander of his army. Recognizing that he's engaging a peer. And if we were to keep reading in the story. We see that as Abraham's descendants increase. Eventually we get to the nation of Israel. And we get King David. And we suddenly see the queen of Sheba. Showing up to the nation of Israel. And doing the same thing. And Abraham's descendants are being blessed. And if we were to keep reading through the Bible. In passage after passage. We see this promise repeated. The nations of the world will bend the knee. 
They will come under the reign of God. They will beat their swords into plowshares. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when Jesus is born, there are three wise men, sages, kings from the east, coming to bow down before him. And for the mathematicians, I know the song said three, and we're not sure from the Bible, but it's just easier to say that when I'm preaching. And the Bible ends with a vision of what this will eventually look like. In Revelation 21, 24, we see that one day the nations and the kings of the earth will flow toward God and his kingdom. So when Abraham looks up and there's King Abimelech, you know what he said? About time. I knew it. And so when the church, 300 years after the death of Christ, looks up and there's Constantine. Saying, I want the kingdom of God. The church did what it should have done and said, we know. What what I'm trying to say to you is that this is a really interesting thing. You see in the Bible, the relationship between God's people and the nations, the kingdoms, the empires. Varies. Sometimes it's antagonistic and sometimes it's cooperative. For Abraham, in this moment, he enters into a covenant with a king, with a nation, with an empire. Sometimes the empires in the Bible are cooperative, guardians of the people of God. And other times they're beasts who devour God's people and drink their blood. Empire is neutral. It doesn't mean automatically bad. Government isn't automatically bad. Politics aren't automatically bad. Nations aren't automatically bad. When they're bad, they're bad. And sometimes they turn against Christ and his church. And sometimes they see in the church the blessing of God. And and like Constantine, they say, we need that in our kingdom. I'm not saying their motives are always pure. The key question for scripture when it comes to nations and governments is is how does a particular political entity treat the people of God? As Christians, there is no simple formula for our relationship to government. It all depends on how the empire at hand treats the kingdom of God. You see, the conservative evangelicals on the right of the political spectrum... And the liberal Christians on the left of the political spectrum, both of these groups naively throw their lot in with their respective political parties. Forgetting that the Abimelechs of this world can turn on us. That there are, yes, legitimate seasons when we must not hold back from the dangerous work of resisting the empire. But there are also legitimate seasons when we must not hold back from the equally dangerous work of joining with an empire. There are seasons where it is just as much a Christian obligation to cooperate as it is a Christian obligation to resist. Obviously, one of the most important lessons from the Bible is that even in those seasons when a government is good, there are enormous temptations for the church. The job of our city government. Let's break it down to that level. The job of a government, and let's talk about our community. The job of a government is to ensure that our citizens can 
have the opportunity to live the best life possible for them. That's the job of government. To ensure that the citizens can live the best life possible for them. And to the extent that our city is making wise decisions to that end, we cooperate with it. We join with it. But we must not be seduced. Because part of our job as the church is to remind governments and rulers they have a responsibility to the citizens. Part of the job of the church is to speak the truth to those in power. And part of the way that we do this is by reading the newspaper. Our city right now is considering building a bigger jail so that we can house more prisoners. And we need a discussion about that in our city. And it's the job of the church to rise up and say, wait a minute. Why doesn't our city have work release programs like other cities? Why is our jail so disproportionately filled to other similar cities? Is building a bigger jail the only... Now, if you think I'm confusing politics and Christianity, then what are you going to do with the fact that Abraham just entered into a covenant... With the king and with so many other passages in the Bible. Our job is not only to find the places of agreement and cooperate. It's to see the places where the government needs to be reminded of its job. And that's not the only way we do it. We also do it by getting on to work with those things that the government knows it should be doing. But can't afford it and can't work through the, blue, the, the red tape to pull it off. Stuff like AvaCare, the pregnancy center in our town. Do you know why Christians are against abortion? The reason Christians are against abortion is Christians do believe, by and large, that you should have the right to control what happens to your body. But Christians insist abortion never involves just one body. That's the heart of the issue for Christians. If, if a person were to cut off their finger, I know very few Christians that think that should be illegal. But if you were to cut off somebody else's finger, and it's very simple for Christians, the issue of abortion. So our government, for all kinds of reasons, is, is in different places on that. So Christians rise up in this town, and they do the hard, expensive work of caring for women that are in very... Tense moments with their pregnancies. Mercy House, right across the street, is caring for women who have children and are facing homelessness. Most of the board of Mercy House goes to this church at one time or another. Hearts open doors where in the coldest months of the year, the church has risen up and given our homeless a place so that they don't freeze to death at night. We could go on and on. New creation. There's all kinds. Christianity, if it doesn't work out into your politics, there's a flaw. It's not fully biblical. 
Now, politics is not the only way that Abraham's faith in God's faithfulness works its way out in this remarkable passage at the end of Genesis 21. We also see Abraham's trust in God working its way out in ecology. Did you notice the end of the story? Genesis 21, verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Here you have worship and ecology jammed right up next, right? He plants a tree and worships. One of my favorite theologians is a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. He once delivered a lecture entitled, Jesus is coming, quick, plant a tree. That would be a perfect title for this part of Abraham's life. God promised Abraham the land of Canaan. He promised that land to Abraham. And so what does Abraham do? He digs a well, negotiates a treaty to protect the well, and plants a tree. That's what a guy does who believes God's going to keep his word and give him that land. The planting of the tree, the digging of the well, the negotiating of a treaty, that is Abraham's deep belief that God is actually going to give him the land of Canaan. He is not a renter. This is, this is his land and he's planting a tree in the Negev, in a desert place, as an act of faith. It's a concrete act of faith that the land, this land of Canaan, will indeed be his. But God's promise to Abraham wasn't just that Abraham would inherit the land of Canaan. God promised Abraham to, to give him the whole world. Go back to Romans chapter 4, the very first verse That Mike Trainum read to us. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring. That he would be the heir. What does your Bible say? Of the world. Greek. Cosmos. Universe. In other words. God was working in Abraham with the land of Canaan. He wasn't making the land of Canaan into the holy land for its own sake. He was making the land of Canaan into the holy land. As a foreshadowing. Of what God was going to do with all of the cosmos. With the whole world. Now let's push this into our lives. The problem we have here is that how a Christian thinks about the ultimate future. Has direct impact on how a Christian thinks about the work of the church in the present. To put it very crudely. And I'm going to to do caricatures and stereotypes. But it just helps break open the discussion. If you believe, if you suppose that this world of space and time and matter, the material stuff around us, trees, fields, climate. If you believe that this stuff is, a bad, is bad stuff, and that the, then, then you're going to say that the job of the church is to escape from this world. And help as many people as you can to escape with you. Because it's all going to burn up. And if you go down this road, there's a good chance that you'll end up with little or no interest in the climate or the environment or tree planting or runoff. Why wallpaper the house today if it's going to be knocked down tomorrow? 
There's no point in worrying about trees and acid rain and rivers and lakes and water pollution and climate change and toxic runoff from farms because Jesus is coming back soon and all of this will be destroyed anyway. So not only is there no point in worrying about the environment and other social issues, it's actually unspiritual to do so because it's a distraction from the real work of the gospel which is the saving and nurturing of souls for an immaterial, Casper-like eternity convention in the sky where we all sing Kumbaya. That's a caricature, I know. But the opposite end of the spectrum is a reality too. A caricature of the other extreme is when Christians are so impressed with God's presence and activity in the world today that they suppose God wants to simply go on working as he's working now. That God is just going to go on improving the world through technology and education until eventually this becomes utopia. And from this point of view, the job of a Christian, the job of the church, is to work at social programs and cultural improvement and caring for the environment and to go on working in these ways so that God's kingdom will come on earth through progress, technology, education, compassion. And all of our hard work will produce what God is trying to do. Now, in contrast to these two extremes, we've got the Bible. We've got the life of Abraham and the whole Bible. Go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Listen, this is Paul's magisterial letter. And the passage we're about to read is actually the climax of the whole letter. People who read Romans as a document about the salvation of human souls and the justification of human souls and lose picture of the cosmos... It's a tricky thing to do. It definitely is about our own salvation. But the climax of the whole book is how we are connected to the whole cosmos. Listen to Romans chapter 8 verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation, the whole cosmos is up on its tiptoes waiting for God to finish his work in us. God doesn't save us so that we can have some endlessly relaxing ghost convention in the sky. Some place called heaven. Christian salvation is about restoring us to our original calling to be God's stewards ruling over the whole of creation with restorative justice and beauty and joy. Now, on the one hand, this is central to Christianity. And on the other hand, it's in direct contrast to our Western culture's heritage, which, to be honest, comes from Plato. Not Plato, Plato. (laughs) The Greek philosopher, 5th and 4th centuries. Plato was the one who said, not Jesus, not the Jews, not the Bible. Plato was the one that said salvation is vertical. Our destiny is upward, somewhere out there. 
Plato is the one that said salvation is otherworldly. Our souls are saved into another spiritual dimension. Plato is the one that said salvation is an escape. We're saved not as part of this world, but from this world. Western Christianity has embraced this platonic view of reality. And as a result, our hymns too often, our best-selling fiction, it twists the fact. That the ultimate destiny of God's people is indeed heaven. But not heaven as a far off place. Not heaven as something detached from earth. No, the aims of Christianity as a whole, conversion, justification, sanctification, salvation. These are not about leaving the earth behind and going home to to another immaterial place. That's not Christianity. This this view that I'm talking about, it is fundamentally opposed to the view in the Bible. God made the body as well as the soul. And redemption is for the whole of us, our bodies, and for the whole of creation. Heaven is important. It's just not the end of the world. Salvation has meaning only when we point to what is getting saved. Without creation, there is nothing to be saved. Creation is the stuff of salvation. When you try to define the redemption of of, of Christians in isolation from creation, you will inevitably misconstrue the scope of salvation. Creation is the presupposition of Easter. The gospel starts in Genesis 1, not in Genesis 3. The reason Abraham planted a tree is deeply connected to the fact that God said, I'm going to redeem this land. Abraham's not the only one who planted a tree for redemption's sake. Several thousand years later, Jesus Christ himself carries his own tree and plants it. But not for the redemption of just the land of Canaan. But to redeem the cosmos, the whole world. Yes, to forgive us of our sins. Absolutely. I'm just saying don't make that the ultimate destiny. Abraham planted a tree because he knew that God's salvation is not about the abolition or the abandonment of the created order. God's salvation is about the rescue of the created order. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord. Until you know the relationship of the tree in your yard to the forgiveness of your sins, you have yet to see the wideness and the depth And the greatness of what Christ did on the cross. Kings and trees. Politics and ecology. This is how Abraham's faith and the faithfulness of God works out. So college students. Go to vet school. Learn horticulture. Become businessmen and businesswomen. And don't think that your work is just to make money to be muscle for the the mission. Your work is the mission. Education is the mission. Fixing a house up is the mission. And one day, Jesus Christ will come back. And he will gather up all of our vocations. And they will pass through the fire. And they will be transformed. And we will enjoy 
The presence of, the God, of God, the presence of our maker, like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And we will enjoy his presence here. And so the, the mundane details of your life are not disconnected. And it can become so hard to see that. Janelle told me just this week, Aubrey, I know you go on and on about the greatness of being housewives enough, but it, being a homemaker is really not that exciting. Abraham planted a tree and worshiped God. Change a diaper and worship God. Teach your students and worship God. Make your food and worship God. Until you can make that phrase and you know it's internal logic, until you can do that, You're still infected by Plato. Christianity is for the life of the world. The story of the Bible is how God is healing the cosmos, the world of evil. How he's dealing with death and decay. And we must be a church that exists not only for the glory of God, but for the good of this community. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.